You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Millions of Americans have esophageal disorders ranging in severity from gastroesophageal reflux to esophageal cancer. What latest developments can help physicians optimally manage patients with these GI disorders? Joining us to discuss an update on common esophageal disorders is Dr. Gary Falk, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Co-Director of GI Motility and Physiology at Penn Medicine. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Falk. Good talking to you. My pleasure. As a general internist, I think of esophageal disorders most commonly in the context of acid reflux. Is that the most common thing that we would see in a general practice? It sure is. This is one of the most common problems in the Western world today. And that can be just a problem symptomatically or go on to produce other more serious medical issues. How often do we see it being a progressive type of problem? Well, you know, the course is highly variable, and gastroesophageal reflux comes in a variety of different flavors. And they include the simple from the situational where someone has got some lifestyle indiscretions. And what I mean by that are excessive amounts of coffee or irritants or late meals before one lies down at night. That's easy to take care of by just pulling that out of the system and seeing what happens. If you're drinking a pot of coffee a day, Mm -hmm. you have heartburn and it goes away by stopping it, there's not much else you need to do. Uh So that's on one extreme, the situational. On the other hand, there are people who, no matter what they do and are behaving perfectly, have heartburn or acid regurgitation on a daily basis. And that's the type of symptom that really impairs people's quality of life, their effectiveness in the workplace, and it's just unacceptable for people to have it. And I think the word has gotten out over the last 10 or 15 years that this is not something that a symptom that people need to tolerate. We have such good medicines in terms of symptom relief with the proton pump inhibitors. Is it acceptable to treat somebody empirically? I think that it's someone who has classic heartburn and or acid regurgitation, heartburn being described as substernal burning, beginning in the pit of the stomach and going on up. It's perfectly reasonable as long as there are no alarm signs, weight loss, trouble swallowing, bleeding, to commence an empiric course of PPI therapy, which is probably the most effective therapy. At the end of a course of therapy, it gets a little bit controversial what to do. Some will advocate no testing is necessary ever. Others say once-in-a-lifetime endoscopy, which is expert opinion but not evidence-based necessarily. So it is perfectly reasonable to not do any testing in the absence of alarm signs and use a PPI trial. It is important to recognize, though, that that trial is imperfect. So the sensitivity and specificity, the performance characteristics of a PPI trial are not great, but it's a reasonable thing to do. It's inexpensive and it's relatively safe. And as I understand it, as you say, it's not a perfect way of testing and proceeding that the severity of symptoms does not necessarily correlate with the severity of esophageal inflammation. Absolutely. I mean, most people, the the classic finding at the time of endoscopy, whether you're on or off of PPIs, is a negative endoscopy or a hiatal hernia. So things like erosive esophagitis are really uncommon, certainly in the tertiary care center, and they're they're pretty uncommon in the community as well. Most people are going to have a negative endoscopy, yes. And the thing that we certainly hear a lot about and worry about is the transformation through Barrett's to esophageal cancer. Is there any reason why this particular type of cancer seems to be on the rise, I think particularly in white males? No one is sure what it is about a white male that causes this. The incidence is on the rise throughout the Western world of both Barrett's and esophageal adenocarcinoma. And current theory really is, is that the thing that's driving this more than anything else is probably the obesity epidemic. Mm-hmm. And there is a clear association of obesity with esophageal cancer. There looks like there's an association with Barrett's esophagus. 
And physiologically, it makes sense because obesity is a big driver of reflux. It also will drive apart the diaphragm from the lower esophageal sphincter. It is a cause of hiatal hernias. And it also alters the milieu in the body with the various cytokines that are related to obesity. It looks like it's related to central pattern obesity, which is more common in men than women. So currently, we feel that it's obesity is probably the biggest driver of this, less so things, theories like H. pylori that we talked about in the past. And you said it is somewhat controversial, but since we can't rely on symptoms to reflect the degree of inflammation, is there a guideline for when a person who's well-controlled or not that well-controlled should have that baseline endoscopy? You know, the answer to that is no one knows. The guidelines hedge all over the place and that certainly no one is recommending doing an endoscopy for people who do not have reflux symptoms, mm-hmm. number one, and no one recommends doing serial endoscopies in someone who doesn't have Barrett's. This is a, a major point of confusion that, oh, you have heartburn, it was checked 10 years ago with an endoscopy, maybe it's time to do another one. It really, once in a lifetime, endoscopy is pushing the limits and certainly do it twice or three times in a lifetime without Barrett's unless there's a clinical change makes no sense whatsoever. Once in a lifetime, I personally do it. I think it's a reasonable thing to do. And the selected individual with that is not the situational heartburn patient, but really the individuals who have had chronic heartburn or acid regurgitation requiring daily PPI therapy, especially males over age 50. Males over age 50, but also females probably should be considered. So chronic heartburn symptoms over age 50, that means you're going to miss some people under age 50, but it looks like the biggest hit rate for this is still going to be individuals over age 50. That's my opinion, but the guidelines basically hedge for gastroenterology and for internal medicine, there's nothing out there to help guide you really what to do. The most recent article was in the New England Journal by Pratik Sharma earlier this year or late last year. And so we do need to speak to our patients who are well-controlled but who are requiring ongoing therapy and at least consider an endoscopy to screen for Barrett's, although it sounds like the precise indications of when and in whom to do it are a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, I mean, what's not fuzzy is people with alarm signs. Those are individuals who absolutely need to have this done. People without alarm signs, you know, I think we just don't know. I personally err on the side of being conservative there, and the conservative is probably once in a lifetime, but not twice or three times in a lifetime. I cannot tell you how many times I see people having multiple endoscopies to keep double-checking if you're going to have Barrett's. Mm. By the way, the other important point, if you're going to do it, it should be done while on a PPI because individuals who have erosive esophagitis at the time of endoscopy, those are the ones who may, in fact, have Barrett's that's hiding. So that's an important point is that if you're going to be doing a screening test for Barrett's, you should probably do it while on a PPI therapy and not off of a PPI. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me to discuss an update on common esophageal disorders is Dr. Gary Falk, professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and co-director of GI Motility and Physiology at Penn Medicine. Dr. Falk, does motility play a role with acid reflux? I remember uh, Cisapride and Reglan being recommended. Is that felt to be important? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Reglan. That is my bet noir. Uh, that is a drug that continues to be used by too many practitioners for gastroesophageal reflux disease. The bottom line is, is that when you talk about motility agents, we don't have anything. I mean, all we have is Reglan. Reglan has a challenging side effect profile. One or four individuals will have side effects. There are no data that Reglan works for reflux. Mm. And again, this is from Cochrane Reviews. There are no data that Reglan works. 
There is no question that cisapride was a nice drug, but that's just not available anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a motility component to this? Of course there is. Uh, some people can have delayed gastric emptying, number one, and there are problems in the esophagus with decreased muscle function in the esophagus. Bottom line is we don't have any medicines that are going to help that. So I would certainly encourage people listening to this not to use metoclopramide because of the lack of evidence that it works and the prohibitive adverse event profile. It really doesn't add anything. And another drug that just doesn't work is sucrophate. There's no evidence that that works either. So it's really, it's acid blockers and lifestyle type issues. And lifestyle issues really are, should be selectively used and not the people hammered with a lot of things that are just not practical. All right. So now let's say we have somebody who has Barrett's. What are our treatment options and what is the recommended schedule for monitoring? Also an excellent question. The bottom line with Barrett's esophagus is that without dysplasia, Individuals should be on acid suppression probably for life. These are people you're not going to wean off. And quite frankly, if, as long as you have Barrett's, even if you have no symptoms, you're probably going to need an acid blocker because people with Barrett's are often less apt to have heartburn symptoms. So the metaplasia, that change of one adult cell type to another that occurs in Barrett's esophagus, will sometimes attenuate the sensation that individuals are going to have. Hmm. So that's important. So it's going to be once-a-day therapy is adequate. Some people do need twice-a-day therapy. You cannot control acid secretion completely in individuals with Barrett's esophagus, so you do the best you can. And PPIs are the cornerstone of therapy. Nocturnal H2 blockers really add nothing and should not be part of that regimen. And that's really what you do. The indications for surgery in Barrett's are the same as they are for individuals who have run-of-the-mill reflux disease. It is not a cancer prevention measure, mm-hmm. and surgery has lots of risks with it. It is a wonderful operation if it's done by the right surgeon with the right technique in the right individual, and it does not prevent cancer. And you're talking about the fundoplication-type procedures? That's correct. Now, there is a controversial area right now is that there are some people who advocate ablating everybody with Barrett's esophagus with the new technique of radiofrequency ablation. Mm-hmm. There are advocates out there who say that this is a precancerous condition, so anybody with Barrett's should be ablated. I don't agree with that, and as do most people who are Barrett's experts. They are uncomfortable with the idea of ablating everybody right now because there's really little evidence that it works. You can get rid of Barrett's. You can change the line to look normal, but at the end of the day, there's no evidence that you decrease your need for following these individuals, and there's no evidence that it decreases cancer risk, which is already prohibitively low. In individuals without dysplasia, two endoscopies done one year apart are adequate if adequate and appropriate sampling is done to rule out dysplasia, and then these people should be watched every three years or so as long as there's no dysplasia, but that requires really adherence to guidelines in terms of the number of biopsies using high-quality white light and being very careful and meticulous. And unfortunately, there are problems in terms of biopsy adherence. About 50% of people do the correct number of biopsies. So from a quality control measures for the audience, people should be looking at the endoscopy reports, making sure people describe what they see and what they do. Mm-hmm. And just to say Barrett's esophagus biopsy tells me nothing. It really doesn't tell me if an adequate job of surveillance has been accomplished or not. And what should we look for in terms of number of biopsies? It really should be four quadrants, so four biopsies every two centimeters, and that should be documented. And people with dysplasia, low-grade or high-grade dysplasia, then you need to do more biopsies, although that's a little bit less clear-cut. But really, you want to see at least four-quadrant biopsies every two centimeters. When I see that on an endoscopy report by others, it puts a smile on my face because it makes me realize that that person has been following you know, the best available evidence that we've got. And are you aware, are we getting any closer to a non-invasive way of making this diagnosis or following people? No. <laughs> the okay. simple answer is no. no. Okay. There really, progress is slow here. There are a lot of efforts for biomarkers, namely trying to risk stratify individuals so that we can 
worry about people who are going to potentially get into trouble and not worry about people where nothing's going to happen. But we've had trouble identifying who those people are. So that we haven't gotten too far yet. And as far as non-invasive, we just have nothing right now to help us. Thank you for that wonderful discussion and review of acid in the esophagus and Barrett's and esophageal cancer. Maybe I can change gears a little bit. I've been seeing more eosinophilic esophagitis diagnosed. Is that also on the rise? Yes, and there remains controversy in terms of is it on the rise because there's more of it or just we're recognizing it more. I think it's a little bit of both. I think the older scopes, we didn't see some of the subtle findings, but we also didn't know about this disease. It looks like there's a lot of it around, and this is really an allergic form of injury related either to diet, inhaled agents, or some combination in a genetically susceptible individual. And it's a fascinating disease. It's one of those things that makes medicine fun in that it wasn't around when I first started, and now it's around, and we're not exactly sure why or how, and we're not sure the best way to treat it. Mm-hmm. We do know how to diagnose it, and we do know that a lot of people with dysphagia, trouble swallowing, or food impaction, even sometimes with chest pain or even intractable reflux symptoms, may have this disorder. It's something to be aware of, and it's something to look for carefully. Again, requires meticulous endoscopy and meticulous biopsies. Current recommendations, a minimum of five biopsies up and down the esophagus, not just a random one or two biopsies. And so in the office, we're more likely to see more dysphagia-type symptoms in someone with eosinophilic? Yes, people who would have been subscribed in the past to Schatzky's ring or reflux, anytime, especially a young person with a family history and reports that I think about. And I always look then for, is there a history of allergy, yes or no, food allergies, seasonal allergies, asthma, any atopic tendencies, and that really gets me going. And then you throw in a food impaction, and you can almost make the diagnosis before you even take a look in with a scope. Very good. In the minute we have left, anything new on dysmotility? Are we still using nitroglycerin, calcium blockers, still using manometry? What's going on there? Well, the newest thing with motility really is that the way we test for it now is with high-resolution manometry. It gives us a much better view of things. At the end of the day, the only disorder that the listenership needs to be aware of is achalasia because that's treatable and typically missed. People usually see multiple doctors before the diagnosis is made. GERD despite therapy, regurgitation, dysphagia, all of our symptoms and can be missed, and that's really the one you need to know about. All the rest of them are a hodgepodge for which there is no therapy that's especially useful, and it really no therapy that really matters. It's achalasia is the one you want to know about and high-resolution manometry, which is a much better technique at picking up subtle abnormalities in early achalasia, is what we're doing right now. Wonderful. Well, I very much want to thank uh, my guest from Penn Medicine, Dr. Gary Falk, for this energetic and very clear review of the current status of esophageal disorders. Very helpful for me and I think for most of our listeners. Thank you very much for being our guest this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. My pleasure. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.